Hello, you're listening to Fourth Estate on 2SER and the Community Radio Network. Isabel Sumson with you this week. Hope you had a pleasant Easter, Passover or simply enjoyed the long weekend. It's time now to take a look at what's been happening in the media. And joining me on the panel this week are Nick Lazaridis, an international freelancer. Hi. Hello. Whitney Fitzsimmons, TV presenter and journalist. Hello, how are you? And Gina Rushton, reporter for The Australian. Hi. Hello. Thank you all for joining me. Uh, This week, Rolling Stone magazine announced that it has retracted a controversial article about an alleged gang rape that took place at the University of Virginia. This comes after an independent review by Columbia University, which calls the article a story of journalistic failure that was avoidable. The article was called A Rape on Campus and told the story of a freshman called Jackie who said she was gang raped at a fraternity party. Its publication did lead to a nationwide conversation about on-campus assault at US universities. The story was published in mid-November last year and pretty soon other media were uh, raising doubts about its accuracy. For example, the Washington Post published an investigation in December in which friends of the victim who were quoted in Rolling Stone denied saying what was reported. So should Rolling Stone have retracted the story earlier? Whitney, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I don't, I don't really know on that one, but I do think that, you know, these sorts of things happen in journalism anyway because uh, journalists are people, we make mistakes. Um, To be honest with you, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often Mm. because of the nature of the news cycle now. It's so fast. Um, And also the constricting of budgets and finances for major news outlets and publications. People are under, journalists are under a lot more pressure. I mean, you'll remember recently there was the case of the Sydney Morning Herald running that big feature piece about the blogger who cured herself of cancer but actually didn't. Um, And also a few years back, Mike Daisy uh, accusing Apple, uh, Apple's factory in China, Foxconn, of uh, you know horif- horrific things, um, but but basically fabricating and you know this American life, which is held up to be an incredible you know mm. journalistic um, uh, outlet, even had to issue a retraction. So I mean, I think the fact that they did issue a retraction is is a good thing and that is a responsible thing. I don't know about how quickly they should have done it. You know, sometimes these things take a while because you don't know where the accusations of inaccuracy are coming from. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Rolling Stone's managing editor said their fundamental mistake was in suspending any scepticism about the victim's account because of sensitivity about the issue. When you are dealing with these really (laughs) difficult topics like rape... Um, is it easier to make this kind of mistake? Well, no, I think you've got to yeah, the, the the bar's got to be set where it's where it's set, and at the end of the day, the oversight didn't take place at the time that it should have taken place. So um, there wasn't a retraction, and uh, you know, I think they're maybe looking for an excuse, um, but but at the end of the day, there probably should have been a retraction. But Rolling Stone's got a very good reputation or it's had a mm. good reputation in the past and I think the American media um, generally uh, catches these things 
probably better than we do here, actually. Mm. Um, so I think it's just one of those one of those things, really. I, I think it's also one of those things where when you're dealing with really delicate issues like cancer, rape, mm-hmm. you know, people committing, to... com- committing suicide. I don't know about you, Nick, or you, mm-hmm. Gina, but, I mean, I know myself I have to check myself and say, okay, I'm going to have to ask t- tough questions and I feel as a person, you know, perhaps a little bit bad about that, but, you know, um, it is part of the job and you have to make sure there's a caveat around the information that you're trying to get, um, the interview, etc., so that the person you're interviewing isn't feeling like they're being victimised mm. uh, by the process. Mm. There is, you know, sort of the difficulty that we're also told when you're covering these kind of issues, it's very important to, you know, not re-traumatise the person. You need to kind of um, tread quite carefully you know, is there a difficulty in balancing these two kind of things or are there, you know, quite clear things that you can do? Gina? Oh, yeah, definitely I think there are. But I think that it's a bit of a cop-out. To say, I mean, they said they came out and said that it was too... They were too differential to our rape victim and I just think that's a massive cop-out. I mean, if the, if the whole pro- journalistic process around it has been exposed as being pretty shonky, then, you know, it's up to you as a journalist to... Um, you should be deferential to the victim in this in this situation, mm. um, and then it's up to you as a journalist to kind of uh, fill in the gaps around that. And if you know the gaps are that massive, then it's it's not for you to blame the victim, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Just because you're deferential doesn't mean you're rigorous and you're ju- you're not yeah, rigorous totally. in your judgment. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely, absolutely. And I think the journalist herself, if if I'm not mistaken, mm. uh, admitted there was a moment when she was pressing the the, the victim for a name um, that that the alarm bells rang, and I mean. You know, at that point, uh, you know, she really had to make a decision. And, and, and I don't know about traumatising the victim anymore by demanding that information or demanding hmm. something to satisfy herself that it was uh, was all ringing true. Hmm. And uh, Nick, as you pointed out, Rolling Stone does have a very good reputation for journalism. Do you think this is going to cause long-term damage or will the retraction have kind of, you know, isolated this incident and um, will, you know, protect their integrity. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I don't think that it'll have any long-term mm. damage. I think I the can't. brand is too strong. Yeah, I think so. If you look yeah. at, you know, New York Times has had issues. Yep. Um, this American Life, as I mentioned, you know, if the brand is strong, everybody makes a mistake. Yep. Yeah. Okay, well, moving along. And uh, hostages of January's supermarket siege in <coughs> Paris are suing French news outlets that broadcast their location in live reporting. The lawsuit claims that the media endangered the lives of those inside. And this isn't the only time that media have been criticised for coverage of hostage situations in recent times. Um, probably all remember that during the siege of the Lint Cafe, uh, accusations were also levelled at TV news who were showing the positions of police surrounding the building. Uh, this lawsuit got quite a bit of coverage outside of France um, when it was announced last Friday. Do you think it's likely to have an impact on media procedures beyond France's borders as well, Nick? Well, look, um, I think I'm assuming in this case, and I don't quite know what the details are, but I'm assuming that uh, the TV channel got the information from social media, perhaps, or or some other outlet. I don't imagine that the victims rang up the TV channel, or is that the case? I think that was the case. That was yes. the case? Yeah. Well, That's look, interesting. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, look... Uh, 
I, th- I think in that case, then the TV channel uh, has to take responsibility. I mean, it's 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 rather astonishing that they would uh, allow the exact location of the of the hostages mm. to be broadcast because that does put them in danger. Mm. I would have thought it was a matter for civil authority. I mean, for the uh, not, it's not a civil case, but it's a um, it's a police case mm. uh, almost. I would have thought. Gina, mm. uh, you covered the Sydney siege. Um, do you think that? You know, the media sort of gets in trouble, you know, in these sort of, you know, two recent situations mm. because it's something that they're not used to dealing with or there's a lack of guidelines or... Look, I think in this instance, um, I, I honestly can't see how they could have done something that reckless. I honestly think that that was a really bad judgment call made by someone. Um, but at the same time, you know, like when we were covering the siege, um, it's a really, you know, it's a long overnight kind of thing and, you, and you're there every hour and you're kind of trying to ride this balance between catering to this 24-hour news cycle and keeping people updated and also um, obviously the paramount concern is the safety of the hostages. And I remember actually when we were covering it, um, we knew quite early on in the day who the gunman was and, and we were in, to, you know, talking with the police as I can't, I can't imagine why this red, the TV station wasn't doing the same thing. But I guess, um, yeah, we were kind of communicating and, and it got to at, at 12 and then I was on the kind of overnight shift and these hostage videos started coming up and I remember calling the editors and and because you're kind of still in that oh we've got to put everything live mode and I mm. thought okay so do we do we put this up and um, they said no because and obviously because it might jeopardise the safety of the hostages but one thing that I remember I was keeping an eye on Twitter to see if anyone else was watching them and it was being broadcast from one of the victims um, Joel Harat's YouTube account and this misinformation started coming out that he was the gunman because it was coming from his account. And, you know, I think there's a huge responsibility there. I mean, can you imagine if, you know, your family member was being held hostage and people were tweeting about him being the gunman? It was pretty appalling. Um, So I guess it's about, you know, wanting to break news and respecting that it's a really dangerous situation. Yeah. yeah, and I think you've raised a couple of really important points. Is it wanting to break the news and also feeding the 24-7 yeah, cycle? Yeah, is that, And then when you combine that with really inexperienced, I'm talking about the television coverage, mm. um, really inexperienced journalists out on the road wanting to kind of getting really excited that this is their first big story or one of the first sometimes they're not experienced enough to know when they've crossed that line, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where some of the Sydney siege criticism stemmed from. Um, So, yeah, it's a really difficult environment, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think with this um, French case, the uh, TV channel that um, did broadcast these locations, they're a very new TV channel. Um, They sort of, you know, recruit people straight out of university and, um, you know, people are kind of inexperienced. Does this mean that, you know, in the circumstances there should be leniency towards these kind of mistakes? No, 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 I don't think so. 
No. Because I think, uh, sorry to interrupt you, Nick, (laughs) but I just think that that goes to the complete, uh, to the base of journalism and ethics and the Mm. tenets of journalism. Like, you know, saying that anyone can be a journalist now is just a load of crap, right? Because, yeah, you can. Anyone can go out and blog and tweet and whatever, but doesn't mean you're a journalist because you don't necessarily understand the ethics and the tenets of journalism. And that is a very different thing to blogging, to tweeting and things like that. I'm not saying I'm against social media or new media, but I think there's this lack of respect for what journal- journalism actually is. Yeah, no, I, I, I'd agree with that. No, I think that um, there's, no, there's certainly no check put on social, social media, but we have responsibilities in broadcast media to get, to get the facts right and to, uh, and to make sure people aren't hurt. Yep, yep. So on the 23rd of March, an interesting thing happened in Australian media. We saw the simultaneous closure and launch of websites publishing content for women. Women's sites. After four years, the Hoopla announced it would be ceasing publication, while News Corp announced the launch of Rendezvous, which joins a whole host of other women's sites that sort of populate the market. Now, you'd think that the more women's sites, the better, because it should mean that there's more empowerment through debate of issues that impact women. But Melbourne writer Clem Basto says that it's actually coming at the cost of less considered content. Now, I'll get to her points in a moment, but first I just want to ask, why do we have women's sites? Whitney. That's a really good question, actually. And I was having this discussion with a friend of mine who was Monica Attard, who is, who is a regular writer for The Hoopla, um, because, you know, the Hoopla was a very interesting site because it was it was news through the eyes of women um, and, you know, the way it was designed and, and the writing, it was, it was a very interesting offering um, and it was sophisticated compared to others in that space. And I don't think – I think men would have found it interesting to read as well. Mm. I mean, I know it was sort of geared toward women, but it was really – it was kind of an inclusive kind of website. It's not, it's not a Mamma Mia. I don't imagine Nick would be t- clicking on a Mamma Mia. Occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know is the answer. Maybe that was a flaw in their marketing. Uh, they should have aimed it at uh, men as well. Uh, the hoopla, yeah, yeah, yeah maybe mm. or mums, just mums. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Sorry, Gina, what's your thoughts? Why, why do you think we have uh, women's sites, and, and what purpose? Uh, well, um, because um, women are, are underrepresented in the media. I think it's kind of that simple. Um, I think that there are things that you know women. They have their issues and whether they're feminist issues or whatever you want to call them um, that aren't being represented enough currently in mainstream media and that's why these sites are created. Mm. Um, and do you think that they contribute to sort of understanding and debate of the uh, the issues that face women in Australia? Look, it's a hard one. Um, I mean, I, I think any one of any site that is a platform for female journalists to kind of, you know, I think I think that's great. But um, I think that Clem's article raised a lot of really important points about um, who's being represented and and which issues and and the idea of um, and the idea of choice. You know, um, I think that you know. Uh, making a choice isn't a feminist act. Um, you know, we all make choices, but um, I think that the idea that you're making a choice within a 
bigger framework and probably an oppressive one is kind of something that probably isn't talked about that much and maybe why there's been a bit of backlash about rendezvous. I think, you know, there's been, there's been a little bit of controversy about diversity um, and I'd love to see, you know, um, a few more sites where there are more women of colour or different sexualities or, you know, less able-bodied women or, mm. you know, um, I'd love for that to make it into more mainstream media, I guess. Yeah. Nick, these sort of um, women's sites, mm-hmm. as they're sort of called, um, they claim that they're not just for women and, you know, um, we just kind of mentioned it there, but... Do you ever visit any of these sort of look uh, only by only by default, you know, if I'm clickbaited into one, perhaps or something. Mm. But uh, um, it's a shame that I I wasn't more aware about Hoopla. Mm. I mean, um, I only became aware. I'd heard of it, but I only really became aware today uh, when you mentioned it for the program. Mm. And uh, you know, uh, it looked <coughs> like it was a pretty good uh, thing. It was uh, something that probably should have succeeded. I mean, the problem we've got in Australia is the population too. I mean, I, mm. I wonder why the, the Hoopla didn't work or wasn't perhaps more attracted to There wasn't an international audience for it or... Well, the reason the Hoopla didn't work is because Wendy Harmer has a really uncharacteristic uh, tick and she wants to pay her writers mm-hmm. as opposed to mm. Mia Friedman and other people uh, out there who wear it as a badge of honour to not pay their writers. Yep. And, I mean, I wrote... Um, you know, just one piece for Wendy because I only came on board a couple of months ago or about a month ago and then, of course, sadly um, has folded. But, you know, I've had this conversation with other people who've written for the Hoopla and that is that is the thing is not only is she fantastic to work with but her main thing is everyone gets paid. Mm. And, you know, she, I, I just find that it, it's really insulting that other journalists will – I know it's it's an outlet for a journalist to to get published, but you know, really, writing is a craft. It's actually something that you're not just born able to do. It's you have a natural propensity for it, but it's a craft that you learn. Not everyone can write, so just because you have a blog or you have something that you want to write and put out there on Mama Mia doesn't mean that it actually is great writing. People who can write should be paid for their craft, and I find that really insulting. That these other, you know, there's leaders in heels. There's a, there's a number of corporate women's sort of mm-hmm. platforms that do this. Women's Agenda is another one that actually tries to pay people as well, um, but and it's a very good publication. But yeah, I've I've spoken with some of these people, and they're like, oh no, we don't pay our writers it's like well then I'm not going to write for you because why would I you know I mean I could put up something on medium Mm. that's mine you know and own that rather than your website yeah um so so um, it's another sewer point for me (laughs) back to Clem's point um she wrote in the Saturday paper that a lot of feminist commentary in the media has an unhelpful focus on the individual and that this has led to a dangerous aversion to critical thinking and this kind of goes a bit um, back to the Rolling Stone article where it was you know one person's um, you know story quite an extreme story that um, is kind of put there to you know represent a whole issue so is this also a problem here in Australia and is Clem right Gina? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I don't think, you know, this idea of a personal narrative or a personal point of view or that kind of form is mutually exclusive from critical thinking. I actually think that, you know, um, 
you know, I mean, a lot of third wave feminists, that kind of like the personal is political thing. It's a really powerful thing. And, you know, these are like they get more scrutiny because they're women's sites. But at the end of the day, that they're media outlets and they have a commercial, you know, um, they want their content to be interesting. And, you know, I'm sure that um, people writing from their point of view makes it kind of appealing. Um, So I don't think, you know, that they should be sort of, um, I don't know, pilloried for that. But I think that there is this kind of, and I think there's a little bit, um, maybe with Rendezvous you're seeing it, but, you know, with Daily Life, Mummy, all of them, is this kind of, um, I've had this experience um, without maybe a, a big bit of a acknowledgement of, if you're going to make it personal, like acknowledge, I don't want to sound too preachy or academic, but maybe acknowledge your privilege or where you sit in the kind of whole scheme of things mm. um, if you want to make it a bit more um, yeah there's a lot of whining sorry I just have to say there's a lot of whining going on there's a lot of people going oh you know it's really tough but it's like really is it really that tough when you're earning you know hundreds of thousands of dollars I'm sorry Mm. everybody has stress it's not like they're in the factory Mm. you know is that what sells is that what sells in Australia I mean is that what Mm. people want to read what that I still suffer even though I earn you know X amount of dollars maybe maybe I don't know I (laughs) I just find it really irritating. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> just don't you? Like it's just kind of that whinging thing. And do you think that this sort of whinging, as you put it, is coming at a <laughs> cost of, of more, you know, serious and you know, thought out commentary on what are the actual issues that women are interested in or affected by, or you know, ideas that might make change. Well, a lot of those issues that are being whinged about, I'm not interested in. Mm. Sorry, I just... (laughs) And I find it really irritating because there are actually issues that come up through individual choice. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, like definitely like there... We're not talking about kind of... um, you know, we're not. I don't. It's it's hard. Like, um, so women's agenda. The name kind of says it, says it all. That it's you know it sets the agenda. And I, and I don't have a problem with publications doing that. I mean, mm. you know, I write for the Australian, and everyone has their own kind of. Um, and I think that you know, um, it, it's good when it, they they those sites are so powerful when they do champion something or call, champion a cause or fight for change, like when they work to actually increase choices rather than um, this kind of. In, uh, sort of sheltered, I don't know, I guess, debate about a few choices that yeah. a few people have. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. And they're usually <laughs> people of privilege that have mm. those choices, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's a valid thing to say. Yeah, there are quite a few um, issues, uh, sort of stories on Mamma Mia about Mia's struggles. Look, uh, you know, I, things. Yeah, and, and I, I, I don't deny that I'm sure having kids is really hard. I don't have kids. I'm sure it's really hard. I chose not to have kids. If you have kids, you usually choose to have kids. You don't walk into it blind, you know what I mean, going, oh, this is going to be a walk in the park. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we've, uh, we've got to move on. We've got five more. <laughs> Twitter went wild. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so just finally, uh, should kidnapping and killing journalists be made a war crime? Well, the president and CEO of Associated Press thinks they should be added to the Geneva Conventions or something similar. Um, uh, the Geneva Conventions obviously cover the treatment of civilians in war. Uh, let's just take a listen to what he had to say at the Hong Kong Foreign Correspondents Club this week. AP believes that there needs to be a new international legal mechanism to protect journalists. One that makes the killing of journalists or taking them hostage a war crime. It is a war crime. One approach would be to create a new protocol under the Geneva Convention that makes the assassination of a journalist a specific war crime. Another approach would be to adapt the articles of the International Criminal Court which deals with war crimes, to specifically cover journalists. Look, medical staff with the Red Crescent or Red Cross can't be targeted. That's a war crime. So what we're talking about is giving, this, giving journalists that similar kind of protection. Nick. Yeah, well, look, I, I don't think that there should be any special... Uh, <laughs> Uh, status afforded to journalists in terms of war crimes. I mean, journalists are civilians, essentially. Um, I can see all sorts of problems here. And what defines a journalist? Uh, you know, should should bloggers be protected, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. In some cases, I'd probably uh, argue that, that 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 you know bloggers should be protected. Uh, um, you know, in in, in situations. Um, but why? Sorry? Why? Well, I think that in, and this is not just in terms of a war crime, but I think, you know, in terms of uh, uh, higher penalties for the murdering bloggers uh, in some, under some political regimes, that sort of thing, perhaps. But I don't, I think it's, I mean, if you got, if you take the case of embedded journalists, for instance, I mean, it's, it's kind of an occupational hazard, I think, uh, reporting in a war. Um, if you're an embedded journalist, would you expect that the, the other side is going to, Assess whether there are journalists there with, with uh, you know, the uh, you know a, a troop regiment, uh, you know, or with uh, we, we had this situation in Ukraine about a month ago where I was working there as freelance and I didn't have the correct <laughs> equipment, so we had to borrow. We were, we were told when we, we were going to film with some snipers in Ukraine, it never actually happened, but we got to the planning stage and we were offered Ukrainian military gear but not with identification. And um, myself and the fi fixer freaked out a bit on this because we were going to be on the front lines, you know, walking around with a sniper. Um, so we wanted to sort of have something <laughs> marked on our, uh, on our helmets, you know, to, to signify that. And I think that's pretty important. I mean, I see that there's all sorts of suggestions about, you know, uh, training journalists how to fight and uh, they should be just wearing normal camouflage. And, I mean, that's just insane. Um, I think that they should be just... Marked as they are now, there's you, you take a risk in this situation, and um, you know that's uh, that's as far as it should go. I mean, I don't, and, and you also have the problem at the moment with Savchenko in Ukraine, the Ukrainian pilot who's in Russian prison, charged with murder of a Russian journalist. Um, you know, so it's a it's it's a pretty muddy sort of situation. But for you, <coughs> excuse me, for you in. Um like in the field, do you feel that the that the view of press on a flak jacket has changed? That in the past it's been uh, press 
they're stay away from them. They're going to be yep. safe. Yep. But now it's like a red flag to No, all. I mean, I think it just depends on a whole lot of circumstances. Obviously, if you press and you're, you're caught by IS, well, that's the end of the story, really. Mm. I mean, um, they've already made that quite clear what their, what their agenda is. Mm. Normally, in a wartime situation, it just depends. I mean, when in Ukraine, in the beginning of the conflict, uh, the rebels were very anti-Western press. So you were... You were targeted. You were uh, you were harassed, but you weren't harmed. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's changed, and uh, there's actually a lot more respect for journalists. Uh, but if you don't have any identification, uh, you know, I mean, how are people expect? How do people expect to know? I mean, yeah, exactly. going through roadblocks, you could go through, you know, two roadblocks from both sides of the conflict. Um, you know, if you didn't have proper markings, then um, you could be in all sorts of trouble. Mm. All mm. right. Well, that's all that we have time for on the show this week. Thank you very much to our panel, Gina Rushton from The Australian, Whitney Fitzsimmons, TV presenter and journalist, Thank you. and Nick Lazaridis, international freelancer. Thank you. You can find all our podcasts uh, at 2SER.com and you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We'll be back at the same time next week. Until then, goodbye.